1: Good morning and welcome to Fed Talk. I am Tony Vernetti from Feds, Federal Employee Defense Services, and today is Friday, March 9th, 2018. And March, as some of us know, is Women's History Month. So naturally, they put me in a room with a bunch of women. Hey, you. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. So we thought it would be a great idea to do a special Women's History Month show to learn about some of the greatest female contributions to history, culture, and society. And to assist with our discussion, I'm delighted to have two dynamic ladies who are historians on women's issues in studio with me. Now, I call them historians, and people think of history, and I don't want anybody to go to sleep, because they're also well-established <laughs> actors and performers. So we're going to have a good time in here today. First, let me introduce Barbara Callender. Barbara is a historian and a professional actor who has toured programs about women's history for over 25 years. Barbara is currently working with the National Women's Party and other organizations on plans to celebrate the centennial anniversary of the 19th Amendment, which we all know gave women the right to vote, which is going to be celebrated in 2020. Good morning, Barbara, and welcome to the show. Thank you. Next, I'd like to introduce Maggie Warsdale. Who, in addition to being a professional singer, we're not going to have you sing today. Why not? <laughs> An actor is a member of the National Women's History Project, writing women back into history. Maggie is also famous for a historical figure portrayal of Martha Washington. Good morning, Maggie, and welcome to the show. Good morning. Just a reminder that Fed Talk is brought to you by Federal Long Term Care Partners. Long Term Care Partners administers the Office of Personnel Management sponsored. Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program. For more information, go to www.ltcfeds.com, ltcfeds.com. And so to to start the discussion today and what I sort of call like to kind of frame, you know, frame the issue or to frame the discussion for us today, I thought it would be neat um, to ask each of you to reflect and, and just give us um, a little bit information on what women's history month, you know, sort of means to you, you know, and what you think it should mean to us. And so Barbara, I'll, I'll, I'll throw and start that with you.
2: Well, um, I mean, softball. I, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I actually think that, you know, we should celebrate women's history 12 months out of the year, but I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled that we do have one month when we really focus on it. And when the national, um, uh, uh, Women's History Project um, has a lot of uh, activities going on, um, as does the National Women's Party and the and the new National Park here in, in D.C. Uh, what used to be called the Sewell Belmont House is now called the Belmont Paul Women's Equality National Monument. Um, that's up on Capitol Hill, um, right next to the uh, Hart uh, Senate Office Building. Um, w- w- Women's History Month is... Um, I think it's 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 really important for us to uh, to acknowledge the the history of of women in this country. Um, we've uh, historically been written out of history, and now um, it, it's important that we that we learn more about history. Um, most most people um, did not have any women's history in school at all. I've had, I've had teachers come to say to me, thank you for what you do because we never got this in school. Maggie?
1: Well, I mean, just to add on oh, that, sure. I was reading yeah. some of the material that I was, I was astonished. Mm-hmm. Um, it just goes, Maggie, well, you were asking me like what it meant to me and just how like it wasn't that long ago that it was just as, as 1980 that less than 5% of the content in, for student in books at schools, you know, had information about women. You know, and, you know, that's just, you know, 1980.
2: It's amazing. My, it's amazing to think that. Yeah. My longtime partner and I did a, a, a touring partner and I did a a residency in a middle school a number of years ago um, using a theater to explore the history of women in America. And out of that came a play. And they had an 800-page textbook. And there were, like, four pages dedicated to women.
1: Right.
2: And, I mean, this was, like, in the mid to late 1990s. All right. Right. Um. So things are changing.
3: Yeah. They're so, changing.
1: Maggie, what is it? I interrupted you. I'm glad I did that right out of the gate, so you guys can get used to that, because that that happens early and often. It's all right, Tony. <laughs> anytime,
3: anytime. But yeah. tell
1: me what the month means to you.
3: There was a uh, Washington educator by the name of Myra Pollock Sadker. Does that does that ring a bell? Am I saying that correctly? It could be Sadker, but she wrote this very interesting statement. Each time a girl opens a book and reads a womanless history. She learns she is worth less. Now, that's an interesting statement, an in- interesting thought. But I flip it around and say, when you read a story of a woman in history, a magnificent story like Harriet Tudman, unbelievable. I think it really opens up women's minds as well, girls' minds as well as boys' minds as to the strength and significance of women much of the written word was left to us in colonial times and before by the men the women left few written traces and so you have to rely on stories from the past and some people who picked up a pen and wrote about these magnificent women but it's usually the men so anyway that's what i'm that's what women's history month means to me around every corner during this month you will find a new story about a woman who did incredible things and really fought the good fight because that's what it took to fight the good fight. I mean, we're going to talk here about the suffrage movement. It took from the time the Constitution was signed to the 19th Amendment, 133 years for the women to gain the vote nationally. I mean, to, to, women today will shrug their shoulders and say, yeah, well, you know, 100, but that's an amazing amount of time. It's almost ridiculous when you think of it. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely.
2: Totally. So,
1: so when you say shrug your shoulders, you know, that's, you know, for me, when I thought about um, this question, you know, it's obviously a time for, you know, honoring those women that have fought so hard for those rights and a lot of other other issues and certainly a, a time for, you know, some positive reflection on that. Um, but, you know, I, I think it's really a, a wonderful opportunity, a wonderful platform to educate um young people. Absolutely. And I'm I'm sort of surrounded in my professional life about um with young professionals, you know, that and I am often present company excluded in here, you know, but I am often surprised and it's not just, you know, women's issues. It's, you know, any sort of historically disenfranchised group, you know, and I'll talk to them about some of these issues and I'm often surprised, you know, at, you know, it's not so much how little they may know, you know, that they're not more passionate about it. Um, and I really, you know, think, you know, they ought to be, you know, and I, you know, I don't know if that's because we as parents you know you know want to want to shield our children from bad things that have happened um you know in the past so I think anything that puts a spot spotlight on it you know creates you know d- more dialogue about it you know back and forth you know I, I think is a good thing
3: I think you're right I think you're absolutely right Absolutely right. Telling these stories to children about these great people who did great things, I think, and you turn around to them and and you say to them, now, what is your future going to bring? What are your decisions going to be? What are you going to do? What are you going to be passionate about? Right. I think that makes a difference.
1: No, and it's even like we were talking before we went on the air about my my daughter, my Mm 14-year-old daughter who's going on 21, um, you know, that I went in, you know, it's a disorder. She's one of these that I think is sheltered. You know, that I went in to try to tell her I was doing a radio show about women's, you know, history month. And she was just annoyed that I was in our room, you know, but it I had that statement. So maybe, you know, on the way to school, when my wife's taking her to school, she asks, you know, mommy about, you know, women's history month. Why do we have that? Or you see, you know, an ad on TV. You know, I like I got a. Ad this morning from an online somebody selling it, and they were celebrating Women's History Month, and you know you got a special discount. You know you see a something you know on TV a promo, and it causes them to maybe ask questions, not of her, her dad who knows nothing, but maybe her friends, a teacher, somebody at school. So you know the more that you, you have stuff like out there, maybe people are just asking more. You know what does that mean? Good and point. maybe
2: you're, I mean, you 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 may have have started something you're right. she may have she may ask somebody else down the line planting think, that seed planting that seed yeah planting yep. the seed but I think part of it is what we were talking about earlier about uh, before we came on the air about um, the fact that that a lot of young people today don't know they accept what they have and they don't know what went what went before mm-hmm. the 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 struggles that people that women had to get the rights to get us all the rights that we have now.
1: Right, right, you know, and I, you know, growing up, you know, I was raised by a very strong-willed woman, my mother, Mm -hmm. you know, but she was constantly, you know, preaching to us and telling us, you know, about disadvantaged things that maybe she had growing up or others had, you know, and while I probably wasn't, you know, consciously paying attention then, that certainly is something that I've taken, Mm -hmm. you know, later in life. So look at that, in the first 15 minutes, I got my mom, I got my daughter. <laughs> I got my employees in there. That's pretty good.
2: That's right. Very good. <laughs> so
1: you're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio 1500 a.m. I'm here with Maggie Warsdahl and Barbara Calendar, and we are talking about Women's History Month. We'll continue our discussion with Maggie and Barbara after this break and a word from our sponsor. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, fifteen hundred AM. I'm Tony Vernetti, and I'm here with Maggie Warsdale and Barbara Callender, and we are talking about Women's History Month. Uh, before we took the break, we kind of were talking. Each of us were talking about what you know we think Women's History Month is all about, um, why it's important, why it's important to us, um, but. It, And we're going to continue that discussion, you know, here in a little bit, but I'd like to sort of take us back way, 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 way back. It's not that far back. (laughs) To to, to colonial times. Um, And just to get a little bit, you know, of a history, sort of how, you know, women's issues, you know, were being focused on or foreshadowed, you know, back in those early times of our country.
3: Well, women were not seen as full citizens, so they had no political rights. They were represented in public matters by their husbands or their fathers. But it is very evident that women uh, felt that they deserved rights and that they, they talked about that openly. Everyone, all the folks before the Revolutionary War were asked to boycott the British goods, and women did that even more so than men. Uh, And with that, they gained social status because they had to learn to fend for themselves. But that's really another subject. But I think it's very important, and people have quoted this uh, for many, many years. I'm going to read you an excerpt of uh, 1776. Abigail Adams wrote a celebrated letter to her husband, John who was serving in the Continental Congress in Philadelphia. So now I'm just going to read this, and I'll I'll let you listen to these words. Very interesting. And she writes, I long to hear that you have declared an an independency. And by the way, in the new code of laws, which I suppose it will be necessary for you to make, I desire you would remember the, the ladies and be more generous and favorable to them, than our ancestors do not put such unlimited power into the hands of the husbands. Remember, all men, sorry, Tony, all men <laughs> would be tyrants if they could. If particular care and attention is not paid to the ladies, we are determined to foment a rebellion and will not hold ourselves bound by any laws in which we have no voice or representation. Now, you have to hear what he writes back. He says, depend on. Depend upon it. We know better than to repeal our masculine systems, (laughs) although they are in full force and you know they are little more than theory. We dare not exert our power in its full latitude. We are obliged to go fair and softly and in patience. You know, we, we are the subjects. We have only the name of masters and rather than give up this, which would completely subject us to the depotism of the petticoat, I hope General Washington and all our brave heroes would fight. So, as you can see, and you know, when they wrote these letters, they were completely private. I know that they never, ever imagined that they would be public like they are today. And there's one more woman who I'm going to uh, quote here. Her name was Judith Sargent Murray. She made an essay on the equality of the sexes in 1779, and she writes, Will it be said that the judgment of a male of two years old is more sage than that of a female of the same age? I believe the reverse is generally observed to be true, but from that period, which what partiality? How is the one exalted and the other depressed? By the contrary modes of education which are adopted, the one is taught to aspire and the other is early confined and limited. As their years increase, the sister must be wholly domesticated, while the brother is led by the hand through all the flowery paths of science. So, what I'm saying here is that during colonial times, there are there were large numbers of women who saw equality as a very uh, important situation for them.
1: So, so, so re- in reading the letter of a- Abigail Adams, I wondered if you can comment on. Um, Maybe some of the positions or involvement of other first ladies, you know, in either one of you in the suffrage in the suffrage movement, and maybe starting with the very first first lady, um, Martha Washington. Well, Martha, what was her Wa- view on women's rights?
3: Well, I I believe that Martha was working very hard, and I believe she had. I think George gave her every right in that household. She was the one that brought the wealth to the marriage to begin with, uh, and she followed her husband. Wherever he, his circumstance led him in the long run. Um, and I believe that in all honesty, she felt that she had every single right in that house. He turned to her at every measure and said, what do you want, Martha? Now, as far as the vote is concerned, et cetera, so forth, I think that women I think they would have been astonished, truly astonished. Do you not agree with me, Barbara? If in 1787, 17, uh, when the Constitution was signed, that they were given the right to vote, I think they would have just looking at each other going, what? It just wasn't going on at that time. But uh, anyway, but there were states. It was a state issue, though. And uh, right. there it was totally was a state, state issue. issue,
2: not a federal issue, which was another situation.
3: <laughs> well,
1: even during the abolition it, mo- you know, movement, and things was, like that. It was
2: yes, it was totally a state issue until after the Civil War, which actually maybe brings up the question of who could vote in uh, when the when the United States started. It wasn't everybody. That's right. It was. It was I mean, it was it, to put it you know bluntly, it was it was for the most part white men who owned property. Exactly. Mm. And then over the years it has expanded to uh, you know other people, mostly men historically. Exactly, but they dealt with the Catholics too. The Catholics didn't have the right to vote and then
3: the Jews didn't have the right to vote and then the whole thing about the African Americans and their vote. But it, and they kept giving the vote and then rescinding the vote. It was a very very hot political arena that this whole vote Situation yeah. was in. So, um, you're the expert. Since we're talking right. about
1: colonial ties, I just have a real quick funny story. But I tie it into what we were talking about in the beginning uh, when we are talking about educating children or kids. And, and you know, or they would say, oh, that's, you know, before, and they just sort of forget or they don't know. I was chaperoning, uh, I think my daughter was in third grade. I was chaperoning. Um, a trip out to Mount Vernon, you know, or going through mm-hmm. George Washington's mansion, you know, or learning about him, just how things are different. And we're walking up the stairs and we're learning, you know, he, you know, he, he died a strap and, you know, different things like that, that the kids are learning about. And I hear one of these young prima donnas behind me say, like, how is this a mansion? My house is bigger than this. <laughs> I, isn't that amazing? It's oh my amazing, isn't it? Yeah. So let's, let's shift gears and, 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 I guess, Barbara, get right into the, the history of the, of the suffrage, suffrage movement and, and you know, kind of chronology, take us step by step through it.
2: I, I gallop through the—yes, yeah. the, okay. Um, well, first, I just want to say, I mean, this year marks the 170th anniversary of the, of the Seneca Falls Convention, which took place in 1848 and is generally considered as the, the event that marks the beginning of the suffrage movement. Uh, Or of the women's rights movement. Um, And in two years, we will be celebrating the centennial of the 19th Amendment, which is the constitutional amendment that gave women nationwide the right to vote. Um, First, I'd like to just talk a little bit about the the rights that women did have or didn't have um, at the time of the Seneca Falls Convention in 1848. Women couldn't own property. They could not inherit their husband's estates. They could not be legal guardians of their own children. They could be legally beaten by their husbands. With the exception of Oberlin College, which had become coeducational in 1835, colleges were closed to women. Most professions except teaching were closed to women. It was considered improper for a woman to speak in public, and of course, no woman could vote. As we said earlier, I mean, basically, it was men and and usually fairly wealthy men or women, uh, men who owned property who could vote at the beginning. Um, <clears throat> the women's rights movement actually grew out of the abolition movement. Um, it was uh, a lot of women were beginning to become active in that, and they they wanted to be able to speak. They wanted to be able to to part participate fully in that. And as they looked around at the the lack of rights that the slaves had, they said, well, wait a minute. Um, We're kind of in the same boat. Um, So in 1848, uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Susan B. uh, Not Susan B. Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Lucretia Mott, and three other women called a convention in Seneca Falls, New York, uh, which is an upstate New York, um, to talk about women's rights. And um, for that convention, Elizabeth Cady Stanton wrote a Declaration of Sentiments, which was modeled directly after the Declaration of Independence, which stated that, quote, all men and women are created equal. And it outlined women's grievances uh, related to their lack of rights. They also at that convention brought up a lot of resolutions, including the right to vote, all of, all of the resolutions passed unanimously except the, the, the right to vote one. Um, it probably would have gone down to defeat if Frederick Douglass had not stood up and spoken in favor of it, uh, Frederick, Frederick Douglass the ex-slave. Um, so, um,
1: so let me just ask, you know, how well attended was the Seneca Falls Convention and, you know, who was in attendance?
2: It was quite well attended, uh-huh. amazingly so. I mean, it was put together very quickly, and people came from miles and miles and miles away. A lot of women, some men. Um, I, I don't know exactly how many people attended. I don't know off the top of my head, mm-hmm. but it it was a it was a pretty major event. Um, three years after that, Elizabeth Cady Stanton met Susan B. Anthony, and things. Took off from there, the two of them formed a partnership that lasted 50 years, and they were two of the three leaders of the 19th century um, uh, women's rights movement. The third leader was a woman named Lucy Stone, who, who was a graduate of Oberlin College and had then begun to speak for the, um, for the, suffrage, for the uh, uh, women's rights movement, as well as the abolition movement. Um, In 1850, she was one of the people who called the first National Women's Rights Convention, um, which drew over a 1,000 people from 11 states, and that was in in Massachusetts. Um, Throughout the 1850s, um, they had national conventions every year, except for one when, to the uh, terrible frustration of Susan B. Anthony, there were too many women who were either pregnant or nursing to be able to do the work, to do the, to pull the thing together. When the civil war started, they stopped, they suspended what they were doing, worked for the war effort, fully believed that at the end of the war, that both women and blacks would receive the vote. And that didn't happen. That's amazing. That didn't happen. Um, In fact, uh, uh, and and politically, it probably if both had been linked, we might not have gotten the vote for anybody. But Frederick Douglass said, "This is the Negro's hour. You must put your demands at bay until after black men are secured the vote."
1: Well, the argument against giving blacks the right to vote was, "What next, the women?" You know, and that's what the other right. side, you know, and, would argue.
2: And in response to Mr. Douglass, Miss Anthony said. Uh, Tell me truthfully, Mr. Douglas, before God and this company that you would if we are so well off, Mr. Douglas, tell me truthfully before God and this company that you would this instant exchange color and sex with Mrs. Stanton. And there's no there's I don't know what he said, but obviously um, black men got the vote
1: we 're gonna need to take our second break Great. here in a second but I just want a quick question um, just because the stuff interests me as far as mm-hmm. history so they would have these com- these conventions yes um and what would come out of them is it like you know the Democratic National Convention you know they have that and they come out they, they've got their party platform you know what actually came out of them and, you know what did they take that to do like this is our message this is what we're gonna do, go do to accomplish these goals
2: they well it stirred. I mean, it 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 stirred up a lot of of uh, uh, strength and awareness. Strength and awareness. I think that's that's good. So it's um, really
1: just establishing dialogue, yeah. creating and establishing yes. dialogue, keeping the
2: movement going, keeping it, right. keeping it going. It created a lot of momentum. Which was they it attended then lost. by
1: folks against the movement? Oh yeah. And they were they invited? Uh,
2: I I mean, it was open to anybody who wanted. All right. Um and yes, I'm I'm. Sh- but in the early days, there actually wasn't that much opposition because. It, it, the, chance, never, the chance the chance that we were Hail gonna marry anyway. The chance we we're gonna get women's rights right. was as it gained you, momentum there was more opposition.
3: And right. I can tell you a little bit more about that. Oh we'll, much. On the other more. Side. So yeah. we so
1: let's stop here okay. for a second break. When we come back we'll continue our discussion about women's history month and the suffrage movement.
0: If you're a federal manager, you deal with a lot of information. Here's a tip on breaking through the noise. Join the Federal Managers Association to have a voice on Capitol Hill. And to get filtered news and information specific to managing your workforce, join the 50,000 other federal managers who already subscribe and read the free weekly e-report. FedManager.com. I'm Todd Wells, Executive Director of the Federal Managers Association, and I approve this message.
1: Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. I am Tony Vernetti, and I'm talking with guests Maggie Wurstall and Barbara Callender about Women's History Month. And before the break, we were talking about the chronology of the women's suffrage movement leading up to the 19th Amendment. Um, and we're talking in a little bit about—I was asking questions about the Seneca Falls Convention and other similar conventions, what the purpose was, you know, what came out of that, you know, how did that you know, serve a useful purpose, you know, for dialogue. And Maggie, you had something you wanted to, to add to that?
3: Well, Barbara's going to talk a little bit about the 72 years it took from the convention, correct, to mm-hmm. uh, 1920 when the amendment was yeah. adopted. But there, were, uh, there was suffrage opposition, and there were three main reasons for suffrage, a suffrage opposition. And they were, they felt that giving the women the right to vote would threaten the family institution. That was number one. And it was an opposition to God's will. That was number two. And third, they thought that women could not handle the responsibility of voting because they lacked knowledge of that beyond the domestic sphere. And they feared government would be weakened by introducing this ill-informed electorate.
2: Yeah, I've actually done a lot of work on the anti-suffrage movement. And um, it's, it's incredibly complicated. And they were as organized or more organized than the suffragists. I believe that. Uh,
1: Yeah. Were there, what sort of, that's an impossible question to ask, but I know it has to be the case, you know, what percentage of women believed in either one of those three, you know, beliefs, opposition beliefs that were beyond, that's what their husbands told them they need to think, you know, or were being abusive about it? Like how many independently, you know, got to that on their own and why?
2: A lot of women felt that way. And some of them felt that it was, uh, you know, that that woman's place was in the home. But interestingly enough, a lot of them also felt that women should be uh, politically involved, but 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 um, nonpartisan, that that they would be more effective that way than um, than through partisan politics. Um, It's you know, it's extremely, uh, extremely interesting because people people actually thought that the world was going to fall apart. If women got the vote. Change is
3: difficult. It's always Change is
2: really difficult.
3: So that's why I think the movement, this whole suffrage movement, and they called it the bloodless revolution or rebellion, Mm -hmm. you know. uh, So let me talk to you a little bit about uh, the president's wives who were for and against. And the president's wives, they had a uh, very thin line to walk, as you can well imagine. Lucretia Garfield, uh, She argued in favor of women's suffrage in college debating classes. With McKinley's 1896 election came the first first lady to go publicly on the record in favor of suffrage. Frances Cleveland, by the way, I don't know if you all know this, but the papers called her Grove's Little Yum Yum. Mm.
0: You like that, Tony? Mm.
3: She was a, uh, a print model before she married him, and she was the first woman to get married in the White House. But she was a beautiful woman, and and she loved her husband dearly. She became a member of the New York State Association Opposed to Women's Suffrage. A year after leaving the White House, Nellie Taft became the first presidential candidate spouse to go public with qualified support. And let's go to uh, Edith Wilson. Edith Wilson, that was a very interesting situation because Edith and her husband faced the um, silent sentinels, Sentinels, the silent sentinels that uh, picketed in front of the White House for how long? Starting in
2: 1917 and just continued all through our, we were in the war pretty much up until,
1: I mean that was a big controversy. It 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 had crossroads with with the Great World War, and you know how could you be doing this? Well, you know our boys are going. You need to focus on that. And well,
2: it's interesting that Alice Paul was leading those uh, that uh, that picketing, and um, Alice Paul, the National Women's Party, decided not to make the same mistake that had been made during the Civil War, which was to work for the war effort. Right the the national movement. The, the National American Woman Suffrage Association did, in fact, suspend their lobbying. But, um,
1: you know, and that, but, yeah. I mean, in some regrets, and I know you're going to get to this uh, in a little bit, Barbara, but, you know, that, you know, at that time, you know, during that time, you know, that's really what, what put a spotlight, you know, on everything, you know, that was going on. I mean, she did a wonderful job, you know, doing that. And, you know, it got to, in the newspaper, the arrests. Yes, you know, throwing, you know, the f- ripping their clothes, throwing stuff on them, force feedings, like force feedings, yeah, that, you know. and that
2: was the that was the first time the White House was ever picketed.
1: Right, right, yeah. you know, and here, you know,
3: that might have been the straw that broke the camel's back, as you can say. Yeah, it brought so, it
1: to to. But, but what was Edith Wilson? What was her? You know, what was her position? Because I know, you know, Woodrow Wilson was on the other side of that. A
3: uh, uh, a decade before. She was married to him. She supported the suffrage movement. But as first lady, at the time of the 19th, when it was passed the 19th Amendment, she called suffragettes disgusting creatures. And in November of 1920, she refused to use her right to vote. But it was mm-hmm. in the 1960 election that she finally voted for John F. Kennedy, but I think it had more to do with a personal thing for her. She felt that that they had violated her husband. They attacked and his, her husband, exactly. It, uh, and
1: and it was and it, you'd be, you know, it, a little bit of ignorance if you didn't think like that was politics too. It's you know, total. It's like you're your team, right? We're in this together. They're attacking the heck out of me, right? You know, and so she's got it. You know, she's got to come out like that. You know, and then there's the it's my husband. That's right. You know, and and you know they ran him mm-hmm. through it all. Um, you know, and eventually, you know, force that issue, you know, upon him, you know, to, to deal with as he's dealing with the World War. And she, you know, responded in a very sort of defensive way.
3: A very human way. Right. You know, and it's, uh, believe me, you look back at all these issues and it's all about politics. It's all about politics.
1: Well, which which goes to show, and we'll get into this, how hard it is to stand up yes. for what what you believe is right, what you think is right. This is clearly an issue at some point in her you know, in her life, she believed you know was right. Yes. And when real life as like I sort said, of tells some of these people working when real life hits you, sometimes these decisions aren't as easy as you think they once were. Exactly. You know? And you've
3: got to hand it to these women who became singular. Well, they they were also looking at the temperance situation too, because uh, they were concerned about the brutality to women by the men who drank. But they they just they fought the good fought fight and they kept at it they mm. kept at it and that's a uh i don't know how you all feel about it today but you know things happen so there's new new news we look for every single morning at eight o'clock when we wake up you know what is being said today because yesterday is old news today is the new news and these women they kept on for 72 years yeah. right. you know and uh and they that's an amazing thing to me. And, I, I, you know, that's what we have to do yeah. in this country to make change. You have to become singular and you have to keep fighting the good fight.
2: You mentioned temperance. And, and we were talking a minute ago about the, um, the, the anti-suffrage movement. One of the biggest forces that was against suffrage was the liquor industry because they said, you know, women are going to vote in prohibition. Well, I find it interesting that it's the 18th Amendment that is the Prohibition <laughs> Amendment, um, and which was before women nationwide had the vote. Um, but um, in the West, particularly, um, the, in, in the campaigns um, in, in Oregon and Washington, particularly they divided those two issues as much as they could because they didn't think, they did not believe that suffrage and prohibition should be should be tied, that suffrage wouldn't win unless it was not linked to prohibition. Mm-hmm. Again, a political stance, yeah. would you say?
1: Well, it's yeah. it's always odd how they want how some of these issues get tied together. You know, it's the old joke in Washington. You know, you see how a, a law gets made is like mm-hmm. watching a sausage. You know, being mm-hmm. made. But Barbara, take us through. So, seventy-two years. How did they? Okay, you know, it, took how did they get years. it done?
2: Well. Um, after the Civil War, after that, after that, that, that disagreement over the uh, 15th Amendment, um, the suffrage movement split in half. Stanton and Anthony uh, formed the National Woman Suffrage Association, and they felt that we needed to continue to work for a federal amendment. Lucy Stone and a number of other women formed the American Women's Suffrage Association, and they began to work state by state. And over the next um, several years, um, uh, actually, with w- very quickly, there were two victories. Uh, Wyoming women were in, in the Wyoming Territory. Women received the vote in eighteen sixty nine, late eighteen sixty nine, and in early eighteen seventy, the women of the Utah Territory received the vote. This was full suffrage. Well, they were th- territory, so they didn't they. We weren't they weren't a state yet. But um, Idaho, um, uh, Utah, unfortunately, lost it about 15 years later in, in part of a, a bill in Congress dealing with mostly with polygamy. Um, but in 1890, the um, the uh, uh, Wyoming came into the union as a state, um, as the first suffrage state. Congress wanted them to come in without their women voting. And they said, we'll stay a territory for 100 years if our women don't vote. And then a few years later, in 1893, Colorado won the vote. In 1896, Utah came into the union with their women voting, and Idaho uh, women won the vote. And then there was a huge gap. We, many, many, many campaigns, but, but no victories.
1: So Ste- why, why the, the sort of Western territories and the Western states were the, were the first to pave the way? Was just more progressive thinking. Well,
2: it's really hard to place your women on a pedestal, which is what happened a lot, having to do with the suffrage movement. If they're out there chopping the wood and you know walking the plowing the field, plowing the the field, you know having babies in in covered wagons, stuff like that. So, um, um, uh, that's the main reason. Uh, I mean, prior to the passage of the 19th Amendment, um, I believe New York was the only eastern state where women won the vote, and that wasn't until 1917. Um, During all this time, the the work for the federal amendment was still kind of happening. It was being submitted to Congress every year, but it never made it out of committee. Um, In 1890, the two... suffrage organizations came together to form a, a really long name, the National American Woman Suffrage Association. Um, and a new generation of, of leaders um, emerged. Um, Lucy Stone had died in 1893, Stanton died in, eight, in 1902 and, and Anthony died in 1906. Um, so starting in about 1890, there were new women, Carrie, Carrie Chapman Catt, Anna Howard Shaw, Alice Stone Blackwell, who was Lucy Stone's daughter, and uh, Harriet Stanton Blatch, mostly in New York. She was um, Elizabeth, uh, Katie Stanton's daughter. Um, and then in the early 1900s, a couple of things happened, which I think were instrumental in in the the lead up or in in the final achievement of the federal amendment um one was that after 14 years of having no new women no states come in um period that was called the doldrums in 1910 the state of washington um uh, the women won the vote there in november of 1910 and in subsequent years, the next year, California won the vote, which was really important because they have a lot of representation in Congress. Um, 1912, there were three, um, Oregon, Arizona, and Kansas. And then it, it, kept, it kept going. The other thing that I think is very uh, important that happened about the same time was that Alice Paul came back from England, where she'd been working with the um, English movement.
1: Okay, let's stop right there cuz I think that's a good, yeah, it's a good r- point. A break area we can bring it back. So, we're going to stop here for our third and final break to hear a word from our sponsor, Federal Long-Term Care Partners. When we return, we'll wrap up today's discussion with Maggie and Barbara about Women's History Month. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio 1500 AM. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, fifteen hundred AM. We are entering our last segment uh, for the show, and we were talking about. We are still talking about the women's suffrage movement and the lead up for the federal, the uh, federal amendment, the Nineteenth Amendment, which gave the women the right to vote. And I'll hand it back over to you, Barbara, to, to bring us bring us home.
2: Okay, thanks. <laughs> yeah, Alice Paul came back from England, where she'd been working with the suffrage movement there, and. She's she went to the the uh, the suffragists um, and said, I want to focus on the federal amendment. um, And they put her in charge. Um, The first event that she planned was a parade down Pennsylvania Avenue along the inaugural parade route, which she scheduled for the day before Wilson's first inauguration. March 3rd, 1913, 1913. huge parade, which turned into a riot, unfortunately, um, and got a lot of, uh, got a lot of publicity. Um, she then um, continued to work uh, using a lot of the, um, the techniques that, that had been used by the British, um, the parades, um, thing called Hold the Party in Power Responsible, which, um uh, basically, there was a lot of, of agitating to vote out the Democrats, the people who were in in, in control at the time, um, which they didn't like very much. Um, and then the picketing uh, starting in 1917, um, when she formed the National Women's Party in 1916, um, it was formed in conjunction with the women voters, all of whom were in the West. Um, and these were women who, who had a vote. Um, and as more and more states came in with their women voting, um, there was more and more, uh, more and more members of Congress who had to answer to women back home. So eventually in 1919, um, the federal amendment did get through both houses of Congress and was sent out to the states. At the same time that the ratification was, was going about, um, they were continuing to work state by state. Um, and um, in a number of states, women had, all along, had partial suffrage, but, by, uh, but there were only a handful that had um, full suffrage. Um, oh, incidentally, in 1916, the first woman was elected to Congress. That was Jeanette Rankin from, um, from Montana. So she was the only woman who ever voted to give women the vote um, in Congress. Um, So, um, it goes out to the states, 38 states in the union at that, uh, uh, excuse me, 48 states in the union at that point, we need 36 to to ratify. the anti-suffragists at this point set a goal of getting 13 states to defeat it, which would have they almost succeeded at. But there were there was quite a, a lot of a lot of states ratified pretty quickly. Then it sl- kind of slowed down. By March of 1920, there was only we only needed one more state, but there were only seven states that hadn't taken it up, and most of them were in the South, um, which was pretty anti anti um, suffrage. So um, finally, the, the last state was Tennessee. Um, everybody descended on Tennessee, the suffragists, the pro suffragists, the anti suffragists. It got pretty, pretty ugly. It passed the Senate very quickly. And then it went to the House, the Tennessee House. And it was the first vote was a tie. So they had to re, take the vote. And this time, a the youngest member of the house, a young man, twenty-four-year-old man named Harry Byrne, changed his vote. He was from an anti-suffrage um, uh, district, but suddenly he changed his vote. And he he said that oh, a major reason that he did this was that he had he had a letter from he'd gotten a letter from his mother, who urged him to vote for suffrage. And um, he said it was often a good, good good to you know listen to your mother. <laughs> Um, so it, it really came down to half a state, um, and it, it, um, it, 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 it might have gone the other way. Um, had mom not gotten involved. Had mom not, <laughs> not gotten involved. <laughs> got well, he, he had actually, I believe he had told his mother that if his vote really made a difference, he would vote for suffrage.
1: No, and, and it was it more, to, I mean, it was, at least what I've read about it, it, was actually more elaborate how the note came in and was just delivered to him. You know, he it opened was, it up like it was his lunch or something. And, yeah, know, was like, oh. yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thab was like, Byrne, his
2: mother's name was Theb Burn, and that's actually one of the characters that I've done in some of the programs that, that we've done.
1: So when did all the states ratify? Is there, What year was that?
2: Well, Tennessee ratified in August of 1920. Uh-huh. The uh, it was certified and became part of the constitution on August 26th, 1920, Mm
1: -hmm. which is
2: considered is now Women's Equality Day, celebrated as Women's Equality Day. Um, there were a couple of uh challenges that went all the way up to the Supreme Court, Mm -hmm. but but basically, since August, Mm -hmm. I will report that that now all of the states have actually ratified this, they've cleaned it up. Um, the last state to ratify was Mississippi in 1981. Um, a, a number of states went back and did, you know did some house cleaning later. Wow! Uh, yeah, really, it's very interesting.
3: But you know, this was a na- this was a uh, a global thing that was happening too with Absolutely. the suffrage, yeah. Because in uh, 1915, 1917, 1918, and then of course 1919, you had Austria, Belgium, Great Britain, uh, yeah. Ireland, Luxembourg. Yeah. Uh, the Netherlands and Sweden, they all ratified the women's vote. So it was this whole
2: momentum, this Absolutely. global thing. Absolutely. But Alice in. Paul, she said, okay, now we've got the vote. Now, you know, everybody said, now we've got the vote. What do we what do we do? Two things. The suffrage the National American Women's Suffrage Association was basically became the League of Women Voters. And Alice Paul, uh, Turned around three years later, on the 75th anniversary of the Seneca Falls Convention, she introduced the Equal Rights Amendment, which has yet not been completely ratified. But um, she actually lived long enough to see it pass through Congress um, and and to work in the second wave of the women's rights movement in the 1960s, which interestingly enough, kind of grew out of the civil rights movement, just like the First wave had grown out of the abolition movement, um, so we continued the good fight. We continue the good fight,
1: and-, and the National Women's Party, you know, has since moved on to be more involved in international women's rights movement. Um, they're no longer quote a lobbying organization, and they really you know are set up to provide more of an educational yes um, function, which is a good segue into what I want to talk about in the final three or four minutes that we have. Is with Maggie, is a National Women's History Project. Um, can you tell us about mm-hmm. the important work that, that they're involved in?
3: Yes, it was formed in 1980 in Santa Rosa, California. And I won't give you the list of the women's names, but I encourage everyone to go to uh, NWHP, National History, National Women's, see, I do this all the time, National Na- Women's History org, and you can read all about the history. Of this, but let me tell you that um, it's known nationally as the only clearinghouse providing information and training in multicultural women's history for educators, community organizers, and parents. For anyone wanting to expand their understanding of women's contributions in U.S. history, uh, let me tell you their mission statement: recognizes and celebrates the diverse and historic accomplishments of women by providing information services and educational and promotional materials. So I will encourage you all to go to their website because I will, and I'll steer you to one place in particular. They have, um, if you go to the website, N-double- WHP. Stop it, Tony. And
1: WHP. Thank you, thank
3: you. See, that's why you're an attorney, and I'm only an actress. Go to resources and click on "How Women Won the Vote Gazette." You will find a 24-page newsletter filled with articles and pictures, particularly that one of the the uh, three days before the or the day before his. uh inauguration that is a, yeah the parade fabulous yeah. pictures you've never and I dare say that many of you who even know about the subject have not seen many of these pictures and on page five you'll have a terrific list of fabulous sites on suffrage centennials and women's history including women's trails exhibits halls of fame states and cent- centennials and more so you can get involved
1: so and that's that's I'm sorry. That's all I know, the time well, we have for today. Let me quickly give those websites out again. If you want to get more information, that's www.nwhp.org, or if you want more information about the National Women's Party, that's nationalwomensparty.org. And so, they have a lot
2: of, of events planned this month.
1: Maggie and Barbara, yeah, thanks thank so you. much for spending some time with us today and talking about Women's History Month and the important contribution women have made throughout history. Just a reminder at Fed Talk is brought to you by the attorneys of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. Have a good weekend.